Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we are grateful that indeed you are holy. You are right, you are true, you are just. You are a loving God, and that love entails dealing with sin. It entails going to great lengths to restore a relationship that we could have with you, and we are grateful. Father, we come to you as we go to the text, and for some, this has been a dreadful week. <laughs> Lord, there's, for others, it's, it's just part of the 2020 that we're living in. It seems that we're in a free-for-all. Father, help us to move that all to the side and allow your text to speak to us as it so promises it will. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. We'll turn to Colossians chapter 2, and if you've just joined us, this is the book we are studying. We're in Colossians 2 verse 6 is where we've left off in our study. As you turn there, you know, you know the routine. You enter the dark room, there's a light on the back wall, and the, the doctor leans forward and says, is it better here or here? And you're going, you must have had tuna fish sandwich for lunch, <laughs> All right? As they look at what we call that Snellen chart, right, those 11 lines and you start with the big E and you move your way down. And, and what they're trying to do is to focus in so that you can see clearly, right? Paul takes a step back. And in fact, in many ways, this is the heart of his letter in these few verses, 2, 6 through 15. And he's, he, he is honing our eyesight so that we can focus in on what's really important to the message that he has for the church at Colossae, and I would argue for us. He states in verse 6, therefore, and if you see a therefore, you need to go back and you say, okay, what did we just discuss? And last week we looked at the, this great struggle he has for the church, but I think it even ties further back into chapter 1 on that great hymn of Christ in 1, 15 through 20, because he's going to come back to that in these verses. He says, just as you receive Christ." Jesus as Lord. And that's probably a title at this point. Uh, I'm reading out of the Net Bible. I don't know if your English version. Some have Christ Jesus the Lord uh, is one way to render it. But Christ Jesus as Lord. Since you, you have placed your faith in Him, Paul says, continue to live your lives in Him. I want you to watch the Him or Christ. It's repeated several times in these verses. Rooted and built up in him, firm in your faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Be careful, he states, not allow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy. <laughs> I had some college students once, I was teaching this text, and they said, yes, that's right, because <laughs> they didn't like their philosophy class, right? Uh, deceitful and philosophy We'll talk about what he's referring to there. That is according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world and not, and here it is, according to Christ, for in him, and that's emphatic. He's saying, listen, this one in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. 
and you've been filled in him, he states, who is the head over every ruler and authority. And that echoes back to 115 through 20. In him, that is Christ, you were also circumcised, not, however, with the circumcision performed by human hands, but by the removal of the fleshly body, that is, through the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, you have also been raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And even though you were dead, separated from God, in your transgressions or sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven, watch this line, all your sins. Isn't that great? <laughs> Not some. Wasn't selective, all your sins. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities. He's made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The title of the sermon, if you have a set of notes there, if you want to follow along, is titled Living in Christ. The basis of it, he jumps right out of that in verse 6 when he says, you've been saved. So that's the basis. But he's going to give us some instruction on how we live that out and then some reasons why. So he's, he's moving through that text and, and, and or through this passage. Again, verses 6 and 7 are really the heart of this whole letter. Remember what he prayed for the church earlier? I know that was a few weeks ago, but when we studied chapter 1, he said, I'm praying that you will know the will of God. Why? That so you can walk worthy of him. And he comes back to that here in verse 6 when he says, listen, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, then you need to continue to live your lives in him. It's, an, it's automatic. It's what's expected. Why wouldn't you, right? And then he gives us uh, several verbs, which we'll get to in a minute. The walking worthy here is the idea that you, you've started with Christ, you're going to end with Christ. There's a quote in your notes by Vodi Bakum, it's dynamite. He states, the gospel is about much more than how we get saved and go to heaven. It's not fire insurance. If that's all it is, we've missed the mark, right? He says, the gospel is about the work of Christ saturating every aspect of our lives. We should bleed Christ. We should be seen as Christ. That's the whole idea here, right? He's, Paul states to them, he says, continue to live in, in these things that you have received that's been passed down to you as you were taught. There's this tradition that they are to cling to. And the danger, of course, is that we're going to see in verse 8 is there's false teachers coming along saying, you know, you don't need all that. And we've already looked a bit of that. We'll see that more as we study this text. But he goes, no, you hold on to traditions, traditions, right? Fell around the roof. Uh, that's why Austin is leading you in music. Uh, Moses, the, 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 the rabbinic, the Jewish writings of the intertestament period taught that Moses received the law at Sinai. He gave it to the elders. The elders gave it to the prophets. The prophets delivered it to the great synagogue. And on they go down this line and say, it's now to our forefathers here in the first century. And so they, they want to draw this line. Well, Paul's doing the same. He says, listen, these traditions that have been given to you, you must adhere to them. 
He says, cling to those. The, teacher, the teaching which has been delivered to the Colossians, the church at Colossae, embodies the apostolic witness derived from Christ, whose authority is supreme and maintained in purity by his indwelling presence. And he gives us four verbs, uh, some word pictures to kind of solidify these thoughts that he's talking about. He says, first of all, you've been established or rooted. That idea is brought out in Ephesians chapter 3. Think about a root. What does it do? It provides nutrients, right? It also provides strength. My dad had the harebrained idea of buying about 10 acres with and he was going to put a house on it, but there was tons of trees, a lot of that had fallen over, et cetera. We dug up 200 trunks or what do we want? Roots. <laughs> yeah, you get the idea, right? Trees. And we dug these up and you're going, dad, this is crazy. Couldn't you get a bulldozer? No, we did them by hand. And I will tell you, that's what happens when you're born in a German-American family. Uh, so he, he says, you know, this is great. He said, this one's a soft maple. The roots aren't very deep. They're not strong. I said, dad, but those five are locusts, right? They're oak. We'll never get those roots out of the ground. The, the root is what root brings us security. And, and, and Paul says, you've been rooted in him, in Christ. He also mentions that you've been established, built up. Here we have an architectural idea, right? You, he is that chief cornerstone, or that, the foundation on which is established. And then he gives us one more. He says, and firm in your faith. This is a legal term. He's saying you've been confirmed it's, it's been set forth. Romans 15 talks about this. And so Paul says, listen, you're to con- walk worthy of the Lord, you're to live accordingly because you've been rooted, you've been established in, 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 a, in a structural setting, a structured idea, and then you've been confirmed, he says. And then notice what the text states. The final verb here is, is an overflowing with thankfulness. Six times in this letter, Paul will refer to the word thankful. We've already seen it in chapter 1. If you're rooted strongly in Christ, I would argue when the, the, the difficulties of life come, you'll remain certain. I wrote down, uncertainty leads to a lack of ingratitude it, 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 and, and so they all fall together. And he says, listen, you're rooted, you are structured. And so he says, listen, you are to grow in your faith in Christ, rooted in him based upon the traditions. And then he contrasts that here in verse 8. Notice this. He says, be careful not to allow anyone to captivate. Really, the term is used of kidnapping A person who doesn't know the doctrines of the church faith can easily be captured by false religions. I remember going to a Christian university, our RD. He was the resident director, which means he's been vetted. He's supposed to be one of the godly ones, right? He's abandoned the faith. Another person I knew in the dorms who seemed to be on fire for God he too has abandoned the faith. And you go, how, how did that happen? 
Because, according to here, in verse 8, Paul says, be careful because they want to captivate you. If we're not rooted in the Word of God, if we're not established, if, if these things aren't so, we're in grave danger. And that's what Paul is stating here. He says, guard against the false teachings. Why? Why? He says, because it's hollow and it's empty, it's deceitful. Why? He tells us, number one, it's not the true Word of God. Unlike the... Unlike the glorious riches of Christ in chapter 1, verse 27, these things are empty. They're bankrupt. Oh, they might look good. <laughs> they might look good for a while, but they, the, the, their path is destruction. And secondly, not only is it not the true word of God, but it's, it's not based in Christ. Notice what he says. They're following the elemental spirits, human traditions, not according to Christ. They're devoid of Christ. Most likely, the false teachers were arguing that there's this belief system that, yes, Christ is part of the component, but we can believe in angelic beings and, and other means to obtain a spiritual platitude. And, 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 and so what Paul is saying, listen, it's all about Christ. There's no other means, but as we see here, their philosophy, their human teaching is based on traditions that we know and the elemental spirits, which I think is referring to the angels. That's the problem with philosophy. I'll be careful, there's value to it. But it starts with man. It doesn't start with God. And when our theology doesn't start with God, but starts with man, we are going to shipwreck very quickly. I've seen it happen time and time again, and it's true even here. Christ is the all-sufficient one, isn't he? We don't need horoscopes, we don't need Ouija boards, we don't need the charts of the stars or the rabbit foots. Christ is sufficient. And Paul says, be very, very careful. The false teachers in Colossae did not ask the believers to forsake Christ. It's very subtle. They asked them to make Christ a part of the system. But if they do that, then Christ is no longer preeminent. It's the danger for us as a church, big C, in this country. Christ must be preeminent. If he plays second fiddle or even shares the stage with any other topic, any other cause, then he's no longer Christ. That's chapter 1 all over again, where Paul says, listen, he's the head. Turn back to 1. It's been a while. Notice what he says in one fifteen. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Verse 18, he's head of the body, the church. Christ must be preeminent. And so, this living for Christ, he's given us the basis, he's given us the instruction that we see here, and now he moves to the reasons for living in Christ. Notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. The first of these is that we have been blessed by our Savior. He says, in him all the fullness of deity lives this is key here, as Christ is the major thread through this section. The fullness of deity is referring to all that Christ embodies. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. I and the Father are one. If Christ emptied anything of himself before he came to this globe, he could not have paid the price for our sin on the cross. 
and yet he's also fully man. And, and, and Paul is stressing that here. It's subtle, but he said the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. And that's going to be very important as he moves to later when he says he nailed it to the cross. Only the God-man could do that. Only the God-man. And that's where he's headed. And he says, look what he states, the fullness of that one, Christ, and you have been filled in him. How? How are we complete in Christ? What's he talking about? Well, the tense of the Greek verb is clear. It indicates that this fullness was a permanent experience. It's already been done if you know Jesus as your Savior. Despite the false teachers stating that the fullness was something to strive for or to seek, Paul is stating that our possession of all things in Christ are already there. 1 Corinthians 4, you are already filled. You've already become rich. Let me give you another text. Turn to 2 Corinthians. You need to go back to the left in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It is a key passage. I want you to look at verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, God made the one who did not know sin, who is Christ, to be sin for us, so that in him we would become what? The righteousness of God. If you've placed your faith in Christ, there's a point when you've repented of your sin and you're in Him. What God the Father sees is the righteousness of the Son. I don't know about you, but that should make your socks roll up and down. There should be a yellow puddle at your chair. I mean, to know that God Almighty sees you and He sees the righteousness of His Son. You say, yeah, but I've blown it as a follower of Christ. Not always am I living for Him. He sees the righteousness of Christ what he sees. And going back to Colossians chapter 1, as we look at this, Paul states the reasons for living in Christ is number one, we have been blessed by him. Secondly, we've been identified with Christ. Notice he says, in him you were also circumcised. It appears that the false teaching is very syncretistic. It's picked up a little bit of mystical religions of the Asia Minor region. It's picked up a little of Judaism, and we all know about circumcision and how that was vital to the Jewish faith. It's what marked you. It's what identified you. And if you were a Gentile and you wanted to come to Judaism and you wanted to not just be a God-fearer but to proselyze, you needed to be circumcised, no matter what the age was. What Paul is referring to here is not something that is external, but it's internal. The power of sin over our lives has been cut off. It's been eradicated. Think about it. In the Old Testament, what did God long for? A circumcision of the heart. And that's what we see. There is no medical procedure or bottle of essential oil that could matter or could affect this transformation. It's only Christ who could remove the the sin in our life, right? That's what he says here. In him we were circumcised by the removal, watch this, of the fleshly body, that is through the circumcision done by Christ. So we've been identified with him, and notice how did he accomplish that? Seen in the next couple verses. He says we've been freed from sin. Notice he says having been buried with him in baptism. 
Now, these, this is difficult, so bear with us. What's he referring to here? Baptism in the New Testament can be seen as literal or as figurative. The idea here is certainly figurative. And I'll give you an example in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul states that the Jewish nation was baptized with Moses when it went through the Red Sea. Well, no water was involved because they walked across dry land. It's a figurative notion. And when a person is saved, he or she is immediately baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Yes, there's a water baptism, which we call believer's baptism, that comes as an identification of what Christ has accomplished. But in Romans chapter 6, as well as here, Paul's stating there is a figurative sense of being baptized, being brought by the Spirit into the body of Christ. The Spirit identifies with us. We've been buried with Him. We've been raised with Him. We've been made alive in Him. Very symbolic. That's why, again, water baptism is that death, burial, and resurrection. It's, it's indicating what Christ has accomplished. But here again, Paul's referring to a figurative notion. And notice what he says in verse 13. Even though you were dead in your transgressions, one of the worst funerals I've ever preached was a young man who had died. He was in his 20s. His sister, who was a bit younger, was mourning, and she literally grabbed the corpse and tried to pull him out of the coffin, weeping. And I thought as I watched that, I, he's not going to respond. He's dead. And Scripture teach us teaches us that prior to salvation, we were dead in sin. There's no spiritual response. And for those of us who are saved, you think, well, why can't they see the glory of Christ? Why can't they see these things? They're dead in sin. They're not going to respond until the Holy Spirit moves, right? I guess the good news is when you share Christ, I don't care how poor the presentation is, it's going to be the Holy Spirit that does it. So rest in that, right? It's the Lord who's working, and as He worked in us and brought us alive. Romans 6, prior to your salvation, you could not but sin. You were enslaved to sin. In fact, Ephesians 2 says we were energized by Satan prior to salvation. But now we've been delivered from the tyranny of sin those who know Christ. And now we are able not to sin. In Christ, we move from death to life, from hopelessness to hope, from unrest to peace, from enemies of God to children of God. Isn't that exciting? It should be exciting. We have been freed from sin because of what Christ has accomplished. He says in verse 13, you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh he nevertheless, you didn't bring anything to the table. It doesn't matter how bright, brilliant, wealthy you are. It does not matter. It was Christ who came and it says, made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. The Puritan writer Ryle states, our Lord would have us regard the crucifixion as the central truth of Christianity. Right views of his vicarious death and the benefits resulting from it lie at the very foundation of Bible religion. Don't let us forget it. If we're wrong here, we are ruined forever. 
Error on in many other points is only a skin disease. Error about Christ's death is a disease of the heart. Here let us take our stand. Let nothing move us from this ground. The sum of all hopes must be that Christ has died for us. Give up that doctrine and we have no hope at all. And he's right. The reasons for living for Christ... Number one, we've been blessed by Him. We've been identified with Him. We've been freed from sin. And I, I love where Paul goes here. He paid the debt for our sin. Notice he states in verse 14, He destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness. The IOU, it's been shredded, right? It's expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away. This idea of taken away, that term is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the flood. Or Isaiah 43, I am the one who wipes out your sins. I will not remember them. You got the stain on the carpet. You get out that spot cleaner and you think you've got it. And a couple months past, did you notice how the dirt kind of accumulates there again? Well, I got some carpet to sell you. No, I'm just joking, right? You can't get that spot out. This spot has been removed. It's been taken away. And again, Isaiah 43, I'm the one who wipes out the sins. I will not remember them. If you're in Christ, he sees the righteousness of his son. He doesn't see the past. Nailed to the cross, the text states, right? It's Paul is, you know, Paul is known as the quintessential theologian of the cross. Apart from the Gospels and the book of Acts, Paul is responsible for all but one reference to crucifixion or the death of Christ on a cross in the entire rest of the New Testament. Paul. In fact, one would argue that the hub of all theology is the cross. Galatians 3, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Romans 5, 8, the cross becomes the ultimate symbol of love. In 1 Corinthians 1, cross is the stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. For the Jew, who could have imagined a suffering Messiah? To the Gentile, the cross was like, <laughs> that's for capital punishment, the electric chair of the day. In fact, Cicero, from the Intertestament period, stated that one is not to mention the cross. It's to be far from the eyes and the ears of any Roman citizen. And yet, in the New Testament, the cross is exalted. Has the cross ever spoken to you? Have you heard its message? The cross speaks of the seriousness of our sin. It's not just a question of actions which can be put right. It's a question of relationship. Our sin was the greatest problem that the Almighty God ever had to address. It cost Him His Son. Not only does the cross speak to the seriousness of our sin, the cross speaks of incredible love of God. The creator of the universe came and he died. God not, he doesn't give us a thing. He gives us his son. 
Jesus accomplished his assignment not by sitting on a throne or winning an election, but dying on a cross. If there was ever a question of God's love for you, look at the cross. But it isn't in there, does it? The cross speaks of the free gift of pardon and forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration of peace, life, and hope. What a message for the world we're living in today. Come, Lord Jesus, right? In a recent book, it's just been published by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. It's dynamite. Gentle and lowly. He makes this statement. Do not minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. <laughs> I was involved in a car accident this week. It's okay. The car is not okay, but everyone else is. And you automatically want to defend yourself, and ultimately I think it was my fault. But in this regard, raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who's already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. Ortland goes on to state, let your own unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteousness in all his brightness and sufficiency. Isn't that great? The cross. Look to the cross. It's the cross that speaks of the seriousness of our sin, the magnitude, undescribable love of our Father, and the amazing gift of pardon that we have. We're going to do something that uh, I love, and that is communion. You have these cups, and uh, these days it's a little strange, but be careful. The bottom is the wafer, and it has a little seal that you pull off, and then you've got the, the glass. But as we go to communion, it, it, it's called an act of remembrance. You cannot remember something you've never experienced. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, this, this isn't for you. <laughs> this is a remembrance, an ordinance for the church, however it can be for you. And it's a symbol of what Christ has done for you. Christ nailed it to the cross. He's removed that shackle of sin. He did it because he loves you. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I cannot think of a better time to do it than today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. <laughs> For those of you who know Christ as your Savior, perhaps the opening verse here of 6 is, let us continue to live our lives in Him. Maybe this has been a rough week or month or period of life where you're struggling living for Him. Spend some time. Let's spend some time praying, reflecting on our relationship with the Lord, and then we'll come to this communion. I'll have the instruments play.
I survey that wondrous cross. <laughs> oh, Lord, thank you for your amazing gift to us. <laughs> we did not deserve it. We brought nothing to Calvary but our sin. And you took it and you nailed it to the cross. The IOU that we were indebted to you has been removed. There was no way to remove it, no matter what act could be accomplished. It was only through Christ. We thank you. We praise you. Thank you for this remembrance now as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen. The bread, if you take that out of the bottom of your doohickey, <laughs> and you look at this, Remember Christ's words, he said, this is my body. Crucifixion was pretty horrific. The scourging alone was so bad that Domitian later banned it as part of the crucifixion process, the bone to be exposed from the whipping. The whip had shards in it of metal and lead weight. He said, Jesus said, this is my body is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup. <laughs> it was blood. He sat a bit at the Garden of Gethsemane, if you recall, from the intense prayer, then the scourging, the beatings, the lifting up of the beam, and then when he was nailed, the cross but as Paul states he did that for us so in remembrance this is the cup and the new covenant of my blood do this in remembrance of me hmm. you think it would be over wouldn't you the death that seems to be the conclusion of the story however the surprise was not the Lord. He knew full well it was Satan's surprise because death was defeated. Notice what Paul states. Go back to the text in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's Satan and company. And he has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing. You get this idea of the triumphal arch that the Roman emperors would come through victorious for the generals with their entourage of their captives. And there's Satan shackled, but not us. We've been redeemed. And he says, look what the text says, triumphing over them by the cross. Take away the cross. The Bible is a very dark book. But it's not a bad Friday. It's not an awful Friday or a sad Friday. It is a good Friday. He is victorious. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified and I unto the world. So Paul asked us to spend some time refocusing this morning on our lives it's in Christ whom we receive as Lord. We live in Him, the one whom the fullness of God had dwells. In Him we've been incorporated into the death, 
burial, and resurrection of our Savior. It is in Him that we have been raised and given life because of the cross. What really matters then? <laughs> it's Christ and Christ alone. He is the one who overcame. 